I'm Robin Amlo of IBS Intelligence. You're listening to the IBSI Views podcast. With me is Professor Adam Putz, Director of Research at Omni. We're talking about the pace of venture capital deployment. Over the past six months, the median amount raised at Series A clocked in at $14 million, with the top decile at over $30 million. Where is all this money coming from, Adam? A lot more places than it used to, that's for sure. The last, really like since the pandemic, but certainly in in the last year, what we've seen are a lot of what we think of as crossover funds. Non-traditional, not necessarily office holders off Sand Hill Road in Silicon Valley, but think more folks from the Wall Street arena coming in from the hedge fund space, uh, growth stage private equity, even sovereign wealth funds, and some of the larger, more sophisticated LPs say, representing pension funds and that sort of investor community coming in and, and really trying to get positioned on the cap table earlier than they ever have. Historically, that sort of seed A, B range where Omni's data is really most comprehensive, um, what we've seen is the entry of a lot more of these crossover funds in the last year in particular. Obviously, the central banks, and in particular the Fed, have been pumping liquidity into the system in the last couple of years like there's no tomorrow. What happens when that gets turned off and when interest rates start to rise, as they most assuredly will? That's a great question. I'd hate to speculate. If you turn the the money go burr gun off, what happens to the larger ecosystem? (laughs) Well, certainly what it's done of late is make money very cheap generally. And that has had some of a knock-on effect, allowing valuations to tick up year over year, post-money, pre-money as well as making funding rounds more sizable overall. So the amount raised has also gone up. What has outpaced that amount raised has been valuations. They've become even more decoupled than they were historically from the amount raised. The the delta between amount raised and post-money valuation used to be a lot, lot tighter. Even in 2015, that range, it was more like a 4x multiple for post-money valuation on the amount raised at Series A. And it's now it's a little north of five. When you turn that dynamic off, it's it's like that Warren Buffett adage about, you know, like, you know, who's naked when the, the tide goes out. I think it will be a proof. Of, it will be more than a proof of concept moment. It will be the moment at which those who have managed to scale successfully in whatever application within fintech, if that's the focus or elsewhere in the market, if you've not got a, a robust, widely scoped and fully scaled offering, it will be very hard at that point to secure further funding. Well, this is the, the big thing about it, isn't it? The idea of venture capital is that you deploy it and invest in something that is going to give you a great return, but it's entirely a, a, a risk investment. An awful lot of these investments are going to go south and go sour. How do you justify, how, well, not you personally, but how do people justify the kind of valuations we're looking at? <laughs> I was going to say, I'm at no risk of being a, a great venture capitalist, at least not at the moment. <laughs> well, historically, what we've come to expect of the industry is, and, and as it's matured into something we would call an industry, the venture ecosystem in the US and, and some of the more mature pockets elsewhere, is really that you should expect something like 80 or 90% of your portfolio to be complete duds. And only one of those investments is going to make the fund, as they say. It's going to be your dragon. It's going to be the, the mega return that justifies all the other more speculative outlays. 
What's justifying the valuations now, I honestly think are kind of a handful of things, but primarily kind of twofold. One is the permanence of a kind of digitization to more of the economy. And that is where the traditional marriage of venture capital and emerging tech are already aligned. So if you think of SaaS plays early in the last decade, that has become much more of a norm. In the fintech space, things that seem kind of wonderfully quaint are making comebacks in a digital form. Things like buy now, pay later, like rent it. It sounds almost like a rent-a-sofa kind of business model to my own unsophisticated ear. But basically making that available across the economy and across the types of goods you can purchase. And we've seen, especially in the last six months, I captured some of the names here. For example, yeah, like Zilch in, in the UK, where it's a buy now, pay, pay later platform that just became a, a, a unicorn. I mean, it's sort of, an, it's a new consumer credit model that's really made inroads with, especially younger consumers who are maybe not looking to take on the kind of interest-based debt upfront per transaction. And so it's partly a, a bet that that is going to become the new norm. And then I think also a lot more lately driving valuations is depending on the corner of the market a company is positioned in exposure, you know, business model exposure to the most nascent forms of technologies that folks are clustering around Web3 as a catch-all are seeming to drive valuations from what I'm reading. I am deeply curious about the outcome of the buy now, pay later craze. It is a largely unregulated industry. Mm -hmm. I worry that people may be getting themselves too much exposure to BNPL schemes. And I wonder what's going to happen when the economy turns down and people find themselves unable to service the debts that they're taking on, that nobody's noticed that they're taking on. And on the other side of the coin, but similarly, I am equally concerned because I'm old and nasty and cynical <laughs> that there are parallels between the high valuations being put on some new tech investments and what happened in the late 1990s in the dot-com bubble. I think there's a couple of things that feel a little different about the outsized valuations. It's rather hard to do because it's like we would want to go through and we would want to go by individual name of company, individual name of company. But I think overall, the total addressable market is much more of a tight fit for most of the most highly valued companies. If you think of you know making this kind of remark a number of years ago where it was like, oh, gosh, look at, the, look at Uber's valuation at the time their ability to expand into new markets and really kind of go from being like a, a ride sharing kind of platform to this dynamic delivery player. I think you could say, yes, that that looked like a bubble a few years ago in that ride hailing transportation space, but they've successfully adapted their business model. And I think it would be safe to say that that should play itself out for some of the mature multi-stage funded mature startups in, in VC. So um, think of the larger, pri still privately held companies like Stripe. I think a bubble burst in Stripe is fine kind of thing is what I'm thinking. Because of the opacity around a lot of the data, it is harder to be a fundamentals investor in VC. And I'm not saying you can't. And I'm also not saying that no, knowing full well that more sophisticated players like Tiger Global 
are actually bringing a lot more data to bear on their earlier stage investments. They aren't just going, okay, this is a strong founder, a strong founding team. They've got a good mission. They're actually able to model things out. But it is still much more of a risk-based thing because there is a lot more mark-to-market and peer comps kinds of valuation techniques that are at play that you know, a very fundamentals-driven public equities investor wouldn't necessarily recognize. You can kind of make valuations, justifications by argument of analogy. So we're, you know, this company A is a lot like company B. Company B is doing really well for these reasons. Company A is exploring or has a similar business model, that sort of thing. And so there's a lot of kind of follower almost behavior as a result of that, you know, comps and mark-to-market style valuation that that just is by necessity of opacity of data, um, more of an active way of doing valuations in the private markets. And so one of the things I think if you if you look at the piece that was was brought to your attention that I had I'd put together that research note um, called Paradigm Drift, what I was trying to suggest is it's the, as a result of some of these what felt really bubbly and outsized valuations five to 10 years ago, the the net effect is nothing burst. And as a result, that kind of has helped folks go from Uber at that valuation at Series A, whatever it was. That's why I wrote it down so I don't have to remember. Um, <laughs> it, what, what you've got there is something that seemed rather outsized at the time over time, the paradigm in venture around valuations and other sort of leading economic metrics has drifted into that space. So what was once outsized has become much closer to the median. As I demonstrated in that piece, it's only a couple of the companies that I looked at that were at the time considered, you know, eye-watering valuations, or that's a ton of capital they raised. And there were a uh, you might have written some of them yourself. I certainly know I wrote a few headlines like this that were just like sort of whinging and and kind of like hand wringing like what's going on this is uh, you know this is how can they do this and then you know lo and behold a few years you know a successful ipo and or two later and it feels like proof of concept and so i think that's partly driving some of it but again i come back to the idea that these companies are much more right sized for the moment that they're in think of uh, this is this is a common one cited from the bubble era but think of Think of something like Webvan that delivered groceries. I mean, that was well ahead of its time in the bubbly years of, of 99 and 2000. And now that's just called Instacart. And during the pandemic, we would have all been in a, a much worse off spot if some folks didn't have faith that something that Webvan was on to was, was correct. I and mean, I'm not saying that was like complete follower business model behavior, but it's just, it does stand to reason that what what's going on here is the total total addressable market, which is sizable for a lot of these valuation, you know, a lot of what's the valuations are keyed towards, that that product service or offering and the the market that it's fitted to is is much more appropriate. It's much less of the build it and they will come mentality that I think characterized that dot com era bubble. It's much more, oh, we see where you're at and we're gonna meet you there with these offerings, which incumbents aren't providing, it's much harder for them to steer those larger operations to address these emerging consumer interests and needs. I'm thinking of buy now, pay later, I'm, I'm kind of shocked that some of the larger incumbent retailers didn't introduce these plans themselves, for example. We'll round it up there, and I will just put people out of their misery. That Uber Series A valuation the uh, the funds yeah. raised was eleven million dollars that you you yes. remember quite at your fingertips. <laughs> Thank you and for that. 
That's quite all right. And thank you indeed, Professor Adam Putz, Director of Research at Omni.